I'm James Ryan Smith. Welcome to the Things Above podcast. You're listening to episode 60. If you missed the pilot episode or this is your first time listening, this is a podcast for what we like to call mind discipleship. Greg Boyd said it's the most important kind of discipleship there is and one that we can easily neglect. And that is, how do we set our minds on the good, the beautiful, the true, things that are uplifting and encouraging? And I know I need that, and that's why we do the podcast, is just to offer in every episode some thoughts that are from above, some thoughts that lead us to love God and love ourselves and our neighbor rightly. That's the hope for what we do. Today's thought from above is this, all's well that ends well. You know, one of the big questions that every human has to answer is like, what will the future be like? It's kind of deeply woven into every one of us. We want to know, what will the future be like? And then we also want to know, will it be good? Because frankly, none of us think about a future that's bad where we don't want it to be. I mean, we might think, well, I, I saw these movies, these, these dark apocalyptic endings where things go really badly. And we seem to be drawn to some of those kinds of films or books and that sort of thing. I get it. But something inside of us just really wants it to end well. We want good endings in our stories, and we want the end of all things to be something that's really, really good. One of the most famous passages in the Bible is from Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. It's a well-known passage because it describes an idyllic kind of future. And I think that's probably the reason why it's one that when people read it for the first time or hear it, something in us is really drawn to it. Let me just share this passage from Isaiah 65 and uh, just, just listen for the kind of world it's describing. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again. Will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years? He who dies at a hundred will be thought of as a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. But they will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree... So will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They won't toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. They will neither harm nor destroy each other on all of my holy mountain, says the Lord. Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. 
This passage from Isaiah is so beloved, I think, because it's describing this kind of world that we long for. It's this beautiful uh, way of living that strikes a chord deep inside all of us because something in us longs for this kind of ending, that one day this is how it's going to be. And that's crucial, right? It, It tells us something about who we are and what we were made for. But as I said earlier, that's not always the image we hear in the world that we live in, in the quote-unquote secular world that we live in, a world that doesn't really hold a view that there is a spiritual reality, even a God. And in that view, which is actually known in philosophy as a closed universe, the view that we live in a closed universe says, hey, we're all there is. I mean, this is, this is all we got is this world and us in it, and we got to make this work. And we look around and say, this is a broken world, right? There's so much pain and suffering. And no matter how hard people try, it just seems to be the nature of it. And we can't really fix it. You know, every politician, doesn't matter if it's a, a blue or a red or Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter. Everybody's trying to say, we need to make the world better. And yet something inside of us goes, can we? Like, can we do it? And one of the things I love about, about the passage in Isaiah is when it's, the person speaking in the passage is God. God's like, behold, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. I will be the one who does this. I will be the, I will, I will. And I think that's crucial because if this world is going to happen, this incredible kind of ending is going to happen, it's going to happen because God is the one who does it, not us. Because left to ourselves with our own resources, we understand, I just don't know that I can make this happen. I, I don't think I can make this reality happen, even all of us banding together. Can we do it? It was interesting. I, I was reading recently an article about two really you know, rich and, and important people on our planet right now, which are Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, right? They're really smart guys who have a lot of resources, and both of them want to colonize Mars. I mean, they're just like, we need to figure out what to do with Mars because we got to make this work. And, and I just go, wow, is that really where you think our hope is? Our hope is we got to, I mean, I saw the movie with Matt Damon, right? <laughs> it's pretty hard to make Mars work. And you just go, wait a minute, isn't this, this world that we live in incredibly diverse and, and beautiful and full of resources? And don't we have a God who's way bigger anyway that, that is in control of this? Because see, I don't, personally believe in a closed universe for lots of reasons. But the primary one is that I have a relationship with the living God. And that God that I have come to know through the person of Jesus is a God who's beautiful and good and true. There's nothing, as I study the person of Jesus, his life, there's nothing I see in that that isn't beautiful, good, and true. So if at the center of this universe is a God who's beautiful, good, and true, and that God ultimately has the final say in everything, doesn't it make sense that the ending would in fact be good? When I look at the universe and see that it's Trinitarian, I have a whole different understanding of how it will end. It just makes more sense. So when God says, behold, I will create new heavens and new earth, I say, well, who is this God that I can trust that? It's the same God who, by God's power, rose Jesus from the dead. 
that same God who's entered into my life in very real, tangible ways, the same God that I'm with every day in the kingdom. I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God with this God who is with me, this God who is good, this God who is powerful. And so when I think of the stories within the Gospels, like the story of the transfiguration, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to Mount Tabor, they think it's like a, you know, going to be a little prayer retreat. And then they look up and go, he's glowing. Jesus is, wow, we can't even look at him. Oh, wait a minute. And there's Moses and Elijah, and they're talking. I guess, you know, stories of Moses and Elijah's demise have been greatly exaggerated, as they say. They're doing well. So you know, the story of the transfiguration is a foretaste of this final reality that's described in Isaiah. It's the same with the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus comes at the end of this incredible, sad story of, of brutal suffering leading to an execution, and, we, and his disciples run away and go, all is lost. And then on the third day, what happens? The tomb is empty. He's risen. He starts appearing to them. He's like, guys, I have risen from the dead. I've defeated death. And they're looking at him going, is that Jesus? It, it looks like him. Let's touch him. And they touch him and they eat on the beach with him. You know, they're having fish on the beach with him and talking to him. And then he walks through a wall, which is like, wait a minute. Holy cow. This is a whole different thing. And Jesus is trying to explain, this is my resurrection body. Now, why am I telling you that? Because that's what's promised to all of us, that we too will have that kind of body. So back to Colossians 3 which is what we talk a lot about in this podcast, Colossians 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. It's right there. That resurrected Jesus in his resurrected form, you're going to be like that. Or the Apostle John, who was there at the Transfiguration, he writes in 1 John 3, we only know that when he appears, we shall be as he is. So the resurrection is, again, proof of this transformation for all of us. And finally, back to Paul, Philippians 3.20. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, using the power he has over everything. Do you hear all that? He has power over everything. And just as on Mount Tabor he transfigures and he's glowing, right? That same Jesus that rises from the dead and appears, and they see him. He's saying, look, this is, this is reality. This isn't a closed universe. At the center of this universe is me, and I am the one who is making the things as they are intended to be. And in a sense, it's like back to the beginning, what I said earlier. It's what we all really long for. It's what we were made for. That's the only thing that really logically makes sense. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. It's, it's such a brilliant logical insight. We find within ourselves, Lewis is saying, a desire that nothing in this world, no experience now can satisfy that. What's the explanation for that? Lewis says, well, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We were designed for something beautiful, good, true, some ending that turns out to be exactly like 
Isaiah 65. Which leads to the question, like, well, what are we going to be doing? Like, what will we be doing in the new heavens and the new earth? Do we even have any clue for what that will be like? Well, in one of Dallas Willard's most favorite of all verses, I heard him quoted dozens of times, Revelation 22.5 says, There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let me repeat that ending. They will reign forever and ever. Now, what does that mean? Reign is language of dominion. Reign means um, the language that we're going to be creative. We're going to be doing things. And that's also woven into the human person. Each of us are designed. We want to make things from a little child who does a finger painting and can't wait to show their parents. Because inside of us, we want to make things. We want to make a difference in the world. And what Revelation 22.5 is saying is, we're going to keep doing that. I mean, it's the only thing that really makes sense. You know, quite often our views of heaven, I think, are, are um, shaped more by cartoons than they are good theology. Like in the cartoons, we're always like, oh, yeah, we've got wings and we're floating on a cloud and we're, I don't know, playing the harp. To which I often ask people, do you, th- do you like harp music? I mean, <laughs> are you excited about that? People are like, no, I don't really like harp music, but I think that's what we're going to be doing. It doesn't make any sense. That's, again, shaping our theology by virtue of a cartoon. The truth is that we are, just as we have some dominion now, we create, we make, we build, we do all these things now, we'll keep doing it. Doesn't that make sense? So the world that awaits us is one of endless creativity. In The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas writes these words, We won't sit around looking at one another or at God for eternity, but we will join in the eternal reigning with Him in the endlessly ongoing creative work of God. God's plan is for us to develop as apprentices to Jesus to the point where we can take our place in the ongoing creativity of the universe. Well, now, see what Dallas is saying, now it even makes more sense because this life really matters. Because now, as I live as his apprentice now, working alongside Jesus now, I'm already beginning to create. I'm doing things. I'm affecting the ongoing creativity of the universe now. Doesn't it make sense? That's how it's going to end. I'll continue to do that. And the only reason we have any confidence about this kind of thing is because we know who God is. That vision of who God is as seen in Jesus, as spoken about in Isaiah, is all connected. It all makes sense. Again, it's the only logical way this can end. But in this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. In the life that we're living now, there is the challenge, right? Because we, we do live in a world where children die or people don't reach old age. We live in a world where there's violence and destruction, where there is injustice. That's just the nature of life in this world. Jesus was right. In this world, there will be trouble. There And there is. One of my favorite stories of hope is the story of Thomas A. Dorsey. Thomas A. Dorsey is considered by many to be the, the father of gospel music. He had this incredible gift to, to play music, but at a certain point in his life, he decided to dedicate himself entirely to the service of God. He said, God, you've given me these gifts. I want to use them for you. And 
As the story goes, it wasn't long after he'd made that decision to surrender his whole life to God that he was invited to go to St. Louis. He lived in Chicago. He and his wife lived in Chicago. He went to St. Louis to play at a revival. And while he's at the revival, he gets a telegram explaining that his wife, who was pregnant, he left his pregnant wife back in Chicago, but that his wife had prematurely given birth and that she had died in childbirth. So Dorsey gets this telegram and, of course, is completely shattered by it and goes back to Chicago. And there he's saddled with, you know, dealing with the, the loss of his, of his beloved wife. But to compound things, his son, his newborn son who was born prematurely, also dies the very next day. So there he is, as the story goes, having to bury his wife and his son in the same casket. I mean, life really doesn't get much more tragic, right? And Dorsey, rightly, was stricken with grief. And he didn't want to see anybody. He was inconsolable for days and days and days, just by himself. And then, as he tells the story, one day, he went and sat in front of the piano, which he'd done thousands of times. And he sat in front of the piano, and he said, As I sat there, a melody came into my mind. And these words poured out from me. And these are the words. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on. Let me stand. I'm tired. I'm weak. I'm worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand. Precious Lord, lead me home. That song that just came into his mind, a song we know as Precious Lord, Take My Hand, would go on to be one of the most profound and beloved of all gospel songs, covered by Aretha Franklin and Elvis Presley and Randy Travis, you name it. You know, it's, it, it's a song that's had a life of its own. And I believe that's because it speaks to the same longing, that thing inside of us that just wants to know that there's a home that there's a place for each of us. That Yes, in this life we struggle. There's loss and pain, and we just get shattered by the things that can happen to us, marriages that fall apart and health that declines and jobs that seem to just you know, vanish in front of us, and we're just like, what am I going to do with my life? But we don't live in a closed universe. We live in a Trinitarian universe, and at that center of the universe is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who are good and beautiful and true, and they're the ones that we look to to say, where is that home? What will that home be like? John Zazulis, the Orthodox theologian, has a sentence that's one of my favorite of all time, theologically, I I think of it a lot, but Zazulis wrote these words. Christians have their roots in the future and their branches in the present. Now, that's so counterintuitive, I have to read that one again. Christians have their roots in the future and their branches in the present. It's not how we think of it, right? We think, well, no, wait a minute, my my roots are in the past, and then the branches are in the present, my present life. But Zeus is saying, no, 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 for Christians, our roots, and what are roots? That's our strength and our sustenance, that which anchors us. 
that's in the future because we know how it ends. We know that all's well that ends well. And our branches in the present, well, we're living this life with that hope, that confidence, that certainty, that God is in control of all of this. So when we look at Isaiah 65, we say, yeah, that's, that's the world I was made for, back to what Lewis said. That's that thing I long for. And because I believe that God is good and that God is with us, I can have confidence that this is, in fact, how it ends. And I know that all's well that ends well because I believe in a God who is good and beautiful and true. I hope you join me next week for episode 61. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. And you can also subscribe, which means you'll get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that one day if you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above. <laughs>